Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 17, where we'll be revisiting the film Goldeneye. I have to say straight away, maybe this is just me, but whenever I see Goldeneye written without the 007 at the end, it looks incomplete. <laughs> Wait, why? What? Because the N64 game uh, here we is go. called Goldeneye 007, so I am way more used to seeing Goldeneye 007 than I am seeing just Goldeneye. Right, you want the big red 007 behind... Yeah, yeah. Well, how would I know if it's a Bond film otherwise? <sighs> Maybe they should do that for lost. every. They should every Bond film up to this point should have been called, you know, Moonraker 007. Yeah, The Spy Who Loved Me 007. <laughs> yeah, Doctor No 007. Octopussy 007. Oh, they missed a trick there. People got so confused. I'm Maybe glad they, they cleared this up. <laughs> so oh. I think right off the bat, it's probably pretty obvious. You know, you know me. Very excited over this. Very excited to finally get to Goldeneye. Um, although I'll recap a little bit. I t- this is probably the film I talked the most about in episode seven, um, zero. Sorry. I almost said episode 007. 007. <laughs> I can't stop now. Um, because I grew up, this is like the one I grew up with. I grew up with the game. Love this film. Uh, so very excited for this. But I'm not sure if we ever really got into what you thought of Goldeneye before the rewatch. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't really know where I would have placed it in that, that episode zero in the ranking. But it, it would have been high. I think it would have been kind of silly not to put it nearish the top. I think it's a general consensus that this is one of the, the better Bonds uh, for some people. It's the best Bond uh, film out there. And I think a lot of that, I mean, you've already mentioned the game. Like, I think especially for our generation where the game is so heavily kind of linked to obviously the film, but also our childhoods, it's sort of, they all just mesh very nicely and just make this perfect mixture. But I think I never really considered it like an amazing film. I just knew it was good. So this rewatch was interesting for me because, yeah, I wanted to see if it lived up to all the hype that it's kind of gathered over the years. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely an interesting one because I would probably say this might be the most beloved like film out of all of them. Not necessarily the one that's always ranked number one, right? You're probably more likely to see uh, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me. You're probably more likely to see that as like the number one film, but you're mm. going to find people who say, actually, I don't like those films that much. Um but Goldeneye, I feel like, is the one that has the most broad appeal in terms of satisfying the most Bond fans overall. The older ones and kind of the newer ones. So, yes, maybe it's not ranked as everyone's number one, but you're never going to pick up a list or listen to a podcast and hear, like, somebody really slagging off Goldeneye. Like, say, I don't know, we did with Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's kind of... That's Pierce Brosnan... And and his Bond in a nutshell, really. I mean, the later films maybe not quite as strong, but he he is often seen as the very well-rounded Bond. Um, some people might love Sean Connery, and some people might hate him. Some people might love George Lazenby. Some people might hate him, like me. But I think Pierce Brosnan is very. He, he just did everything. He's sort of a perfect mixture of a lot of those pre-existing Bond 
types and then that kind of leads to yeah like i say a very well-rounded uh set of films generally just yeah it's very interesting revisiting this one because they change so much and it is in a lot of ways a i described it before as a soft reboot and to be honest after seeing it i would still stand by that it very much feels like that but it's yeah. kind of interesting how many of those old elements they keep in and keep this bigger pill it was just like but also it's something i really like about the bond franchise in general as we go through these like ups and downs uh like no other franchise like bond can reinvent itself and do these sort of mini reboots and reinventions it's kind of like really crazy to see like oh yeah remember when spy who loved me came out after things were going down here when it was a big hit and remember how i don't know like goldfinger i suppose like how unfundable like how they kind of bring things back and now we're at it again after a little bit of a rough patch they somehow reinvent themselves a bit reinvent bond a bit tweak things around and they just had a smash hit it's it's really uh cool to see yeah i mean uh so what was it six years since uh the previous one this was 1995 yes. right so yeah, like that could have been, I mean, we just take six year gaps now as the norm, right? sadly. Uh, but I suppose quick, back then, six years. Yeah, I'd be pleased with that. But uh, I suppose back then there was, that was a very long gap for the Bond films. And that could have potentially been the end of them for, for some people, maybe like, oh, and I mean, and I think there's a lot of kind of commentary on that, even in this film about kind of relics and old versus new and yeah, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that they came, you know, it all worked out. It came back with a vengeance and did crazy well. I think even like Inflated is it still one of the best. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it came out in such a different environment as well, like the mid 90s compared to the 80s. It's uh, it's really cool. It, it's something I, that, you know, some franchises can appeal to different generations and it's like the reason why Bond has stuck around is because of its ability to do that. It means some people won't like certain generations and certain films, but the success of the franchise is on its really strong ability to do that. And we're going to see it happen again with Daniel Craig, even though, of course, there are still the people who don't like the Craig films as much. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of, I mean, as of recording this, that's that's the situation we are in now as well, is that we are waiting for the next reinvention because whatever happens next in the future it's not going to be exactly like daniel craig so who knows what it's going to be oh is john glenn still alive is he free <laughs> yeah i think he's still alive he's probably free <laughs> let's not... let's keep him away though i'm gonna go kidnap him yeah let's <laughs> let's feed him to a shark or something <laughs> oh my god he's 90 oh that oh well you know he's I don't feel bad. We've been through a lot with with his films. I, I feel like we've we're on the other side of it now. Yeah, I didn't mean direct. I meant to play Bond. That's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, he's certainly give Roger Moore a, a, a running uh, for for a decrepit Bond. But there, yeah, I'd like to see it. Yeah, maybe next time. I think one last thing I'll say just before we start looking at the film itself that. all the staff changed here you know as joe said we're talking about six-year gap due to legal reasons and they recast bond they but everyone behind the scenes changed which is such an interesting thing because we haven't had that since well arguably we've never had such a big change in the car or the the production team it's kind of crazy to see this is a new generation bond in so many ways including everyone behind the scenes who just got refreshed and replaced 
I'm not surprised by that. I mean, that's probably a big factor into why it, it did so well and why it, it worked. Yep. But okay, let's get into it. So we get the circles and straight away we get a version of the Bond theme, but this is the most drastically remixed and changed version ever in terms of that it feels like a very different track but they just kind of put little versions like little stings from the main bond theme in there it's um it's very 90s but what sort of genre would you say the score of this film has oh <laughs> isn't that it's, such a hard question it's a tricky it's i, I was writing in my notes because you hit yeah like you hear it from the get-go the the tone and the the feeling and the vibes of this soundtrack is so unique it's so distinct to this film I think for a lot of Bond films, you could have just you could play kind of snippets of bits of the soundtrack, and they could be quite a number of them. Whereas this one, and you hear it, and you you hear like the pipe sounds or like the the clanging and the industrial sound, and it's like, yep, that's Goldeneye. It's it's very um, iconic for this film. Yeah, I say. think industrial is the perfect word, but it's not like grungy or anything like that. It's like atmospheric industrial synth music, <laughs> I mm. guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah so it has a very unique film and straight away it's very different but to be honest i quite like it i quite liked starting with this it's it ties into this kind of reinvention and soft reboot that it's doing and i think it it sets up the rest of the soundtrack and it goes really well into this opening sequence as well so it's like it's very like oh that's different but it's so like unique and kind of atmospheric that it's pretty cool there's a very few number of sections like there's every now and then there's a bit of music that i just think oh actually that didn't quite work but for the like majority of the film i do think the soundtrack is great yeah i totally know what you mean (laughs) (laughs) it's coming Um, yeah it's coming yeah but this type of music where it's slow is very cool yeah Uh, and of course we've got a new bond this guy this irishman i believe called pierce brosnan and he walks across the screen and we get the turn and the shoot it's a little bit of a slower walk that than we've seen before which is surprising because Roger Moore has played Bond, but somehow <laughs> a little bit slower, uh, but all quite solid from, from Pierce. Yeah, when Roger came across with the walker, I did think that was a strange artistic choice. Well, he but, got uh, the speed with it, didn't he? You yeah. zoomed across. Yeah. Um, I, I, the one thing I really liked about this gun barrel sequence, uh, and you know, Pierce Brosnan, he's in no rush. He'll take his time walking. But I, I really liked how they had um modernized the actual gun barrel itself because if you see it it still has that same like texture of the inside of the barrel as the films from the 60s but they clearly with better technology and and kind of um all the stuff they can do with compositing they they gave it this shimmer effect or like kind of a 3d effect but it still looks like the old one it's like such a perfect mixture of old and new from the get-go and like later you know when when cgi just got even better and better and they tried doing these gun barrels even more kind of with computer effects sometimes they missed the mark and i think this was the perfect level of changing it but keeping kind of the visuals intact yes to the point where i think you could even miss it and you just kind of yeah you some people a lot of people probably especially then in 1995 when cgi was just coming in i think most people probably just 
didn't see that too well but yeah as you say if you kind of pay attention to it or i don't know you watch all the films back to back to back to back um, mm, you then do it. pick on it and it does look good but i think that's the kind of perfect use of cgi where it enhances but it's not noticeable and yeah they kind of do that well oh yeah so that takes us to the opening scene where we see a small plane flying over this huge valley and this giant dam and I need to say the word giant and huge a few more times to really set it. This is just ridiculously big. The scope of this thing is insane. Um, so we are somewhere in Russia and it's just this like, oh, my, it's it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, like this is like the biggest thing we've ever seen on screen. And I don't know how much of that is due to just the way it's shot, if they just made a lot of very smart choices. But like the size of this dam is almost like that can't be real that can't be real it's such a great opening shot like you just know what you're getting from from the start you you see that jo- and yeah you're right they really sell a great sense of scale with the the plane as it flies over uh, and the, the shadow cast on the dam really helps kind yeah. of set it and yeah it, you just know like this is going to lead to something like really cool straight away yeah and especially coming from the music as well where it starts a little bit slower it's not right in your face and usually bond films do that to be fair but i think like the last one wasn't quite like that so we have this different bond theme and it's all slower just to then build to the shot of the plane and then just showing it and panning and that's what this film does a lot and i don't want to talk a lot about john glenn in this one but there's so many times in this film where it just visually pops and is a lot more interesting what you're seeing on screen that it kind of made me look back and be like yeah john john wouldn't have done that um, <laughs> yeah there's a lot of camera movements I, I i noticed and just felt they felt different so i guess uh credit to martin campbell absolutely which we'll be talking about him a little bit more later but we go to the top of the dam on the side where we see a gate opening this like metal gate and it gets opened and a man in all black is sprinting across the top with a rope around around him and we get a lot of aerial shots of the guy running along the dam. So not only is this thing huge, but you get these really cool shots of seeing this guy just sprinting along. Uh, and then he gets all the way, or he gets to like the middle of the dam and he gets off his, uh, takes the rope off. He hooks the rope on. It's like a bungee rope, a bungee cord. And then we get another panning shot showing the very bottom of the dam going all the way up, showing the, the very top. And the camera goes behind this mysterious person he and he jumps off he jumps off the top (laughs) (laughs) and he bungee jumps down and all the music cuts out there's no music we just see this man in all black just bungee jump and fall with the sound of the air playing and it just sticks on him for like what 10 seconds something like a long time like a long time you just feel this like height and he just falls and Eventually, he does reach the the length of the cord where he then gets a little gun out or has a small gun. It's a rappel gun. And he aims it at the top of... or At the very bottom of the dam, shoots it. It then attaches and that locks him in place. And then he starts rappelling himself down all the way to the bottom. And at that moment, as he's rappelling himself down, it comes up with the location text. Uh, Archangel? Have I got that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's not actually called... It's a, it's a bit strange. I think there's like a Russian version of that name. 
um, but I'm pretty sure it comes up Archangel Chemical Weapons Facility USSR and oh that's so good <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so good it's so like oh it, it's just I we're only like a minute in <laughs> I know it doesn't yeah it's just straight straight to it isn't it with this film it's just all the little things man like a lot a lot of this is sell, sold by the scope that they get seeing how big this dam is but having the guy sprinting across and jumping down and then having them do the stunt and then show the text to explain where they are you just really get that sense of like this mission in progress this guy just getting stuff done it's so cool i just like right off the bat i'm just like this is so good i i really liked how i mean you said when he's bungeeing down and it is this just very steady shot pretty much in silence there is the wind in the background and it's it's very um the spy who loved me parachute jump kind of similar vein to that where they they know they've got a great shot and they're going to hold on it Mm. and it it does all the talking for you but another thing i really liked and throughout the whole film i noticed this is sound design wise very good because yeah you do have the wind rush but you also just have just a little bit more to sort of i say ground maybe not the right the right choice of word with this stunt but there's like a very slight kind of rustling and and clinking of the ropes and you know all the pulleys and stuff that's involved with that and the gun and it's just um these tiny little touches that really bring it to life and i think that's the stuff that we haven't really seen before in bond is or at least with a lot of the films we've watched already where it is just there's there's an attention to detail and it really makes a difference yes there's like yeah, because I think John Glenn would probably say he has quite a bit more of a grounded style with some of these action scenes, but I think maybe it kind of he didn't add in those details, which sometimes, not all the time, sometimes made them feel a little bit almost stale is the word that comes to mm. mind. They don't quite go where they need to, but even with so little, they sell this so well. And I think the fact that it's all it's so slow and quiet, but exciting, I think that's what makes it cool. And this whole film is not Bond being slow and stylized. There is some bombastic stuff as well. But the fact that it starts off on this stunt that is so incredibly impressive and it almost acts like it doesn't treat it like this. Bala, bala! (laughs) No Bond theme there. Yeah, the fact that it treats it in this way gives it such this cool feel to it that you're just seeing an agent just get on. He, You know, this guy does incredible things and you're just here for the ride. And Mm. it's so cool. Yeah. So, yes, he he gets down and there's like a little crate there and he... Is this where he gets his watch out? Or is it... I don't think it is the watch, is it? I I think it... Yeah, I think it's just a little flame... What are they called? (laughs) What are they called? Flame? Gas? Isn't it like a little, like, blowtorch or something? I think it is a laser, but it's not the watch laser. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, the man is lasering the top of this kind of crate that he's landed on we see some shots of his eyes and only his eyes so at the moment they're still keeping this guy a bit shadowy a bit in the dark and yeah he starts lasering the crate and we cut inside a a public toilet where it's pretty grim pretty grim and we have some soldiers using the toilet and we go inside one of the cubicles and see a man on the toilet with a newspaper and we see above him in the the great, the mysterious man is there and uh, looking down. So the man is on the toilet, is reading the newspaper. He lowers it and we see Bond. 
hanging upside down. And he's got a, a big old grin on his face and he says, beg, beg your pardon, forgot to knock. And then punches the man in the face and knocks him out. So it's James Bond. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's the guy. They kind of have a bit of a creepy shot as well before that, where he sort of looms over and he's all silhouetted. And it's, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a little bit of the whole hiding Bond. I and mean, they showed his eyes before. But they, they don't hold it out for too long, which I like. It, it's just the right amount of, of ominous kind of like, oh, who's this guy? And then, yeah, OK, we know who it is. It's, it's, all, it's all good. Yeah, like the actual shot itself is kind of a bit weak. I like that it is like a joke and he's, he's making a joke and he's knocking someone out, but he's like smiling and having fun with it. And I, you know, I overall like the approach they did because they keep him heading for this stunt. I'm not sure if revealing him and then have him doing that stunt with the bungee jump, I think that would have been worse. Mm, oh, but, yeah. But then they kind of, yeah, they kind of needed to reveal him quickly because we're about to be introduced to another character and we need to spend a little bit of time with Bond. So yeah. it's still good, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit funny that Piers Brosnan's first proper kind of thing that you see on screen is him punching someone on the toilet. <laughs> So yeah, so Bond has now knocked him out and it very quickly cuts to Bond with a pistol going through this facility. So he's going down some stairs, he sees a butcher like with a load of meat. We have a little bit of the Bond theme coming in. Again, the music is still very atmospheric. It's still that type of sound, but we hear a little bit of that Bond theme, kind of parts of it plays in there and Bond sneaks into a room and looks through the window into the cafeteria, sees all the soldiers you know, eating, they're at lunch or dinner, whatever it is, so they're all occupied. And uh, another man then shows up, all in the shadows, and he points a gun at Bond and starts speaking Russian. And he then steps out of the darkness, and it's it's another man. It's a British agent, of which they then talk a little bit. And I think, I think this man says, ready to save the world again, 007. And Bond says, after you, 006. So oh, this is, this is 006. <laughs> Finally, Bond working with another double O. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very yeah, straight away. We kind of get this. And, you know, again, to me, like, I know this film a lot. I know that guy. So to me, I was like, yeah, it's Alec. Let's go. <laughs> watch out. <laughs> watch, watch out. It's a bad cookie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it kind of leads to them sneaking through the base and being like for England James and for England Alec and they kind of work together a bit here and we see them sneaking through these concrete corridors they go past a lab with some scientists in and we get a very quick moment of Bond goes to open up the door and he uses a like door jammer or door hacker to open it while Alex walks into a room and, and shoots a scientist in a very cold manner which I think him doing that is a little bit of foreshadowing. Mm, yeah, I think so. That maybe is a bad cookie because he just killed a scientist for no real reason. <laughs> but yeah, we get these two, 006 and 007, sneaking through this base and working together. And oh man, I, I was so into this at this point. It's so it's so cool to see. It's not something I was ever like pining for particularly because Bond is more of that solo guy usually. But now that we actually have it on screen, two double O agents working together, I was like, this is really neat. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. I think a whole film of Bond working with someone wouldn't work. But we've had glimpses of and kind of teases of other double O's in previous films. 
thinking back to things like Thunderball, where they're all in that room, and a view the to clown. a clown. The, yeah, and the clown as well. So there's always been mention about how Bond is just part of that wider department of double O agents. And it's nice that now we're getting that to a bit, you know, a bit more of it. Um, not for very long, mind you, but just enough to actually get an insight into some of the stuff that, that he gets up to kind of outside of the, the wider, uh, outside of the picture of just, you know, the films, it's the wider picture. Yes. And I think it helps that Piers Brosnan is like a younger actor here now obviously we had timothy dalton before but there is this general vibe especially of how kind of athletic that pierce brosnan initially seems with that big jump and mm. him just running across the dam like you would never see sean connery or like you might see timothy dalton do that he probably could get away with that but the older bonds would never have been that kind of athletic just just to run that far <laughs> <laughs> no sadly not it's true yeah no they would have got a stuntman for that but yeah like actually there's this sense of him being a little bit younger so him being kind of more young and working with another agent for me kind of really works well as part of Bond's character of perhaps at some point he did work more with people, but now he doesn't due to all the things that have happened, which is a theme that this uh, film ties into. But I think if you're a Bond fan, you kind of see that coming already because he feels like a younger Bond and it makes sense that a younger, more inexperienced Bond would work with other people more. Yeah, and and end up kind of believing things and trusting things that end up not being right so it's a very good foundation for the rest of the film and also i just like the two of them working together like at one point i think alec throws him a gun he like catches it in midair it's just cool stuff you know it's very slick definitely so they bond has hacked into this large room and they both enter so it's quite an empty room but there's a lot of gas canisters everywhere there's like a set of giant gas canisters, but also there's all these like smaller ones all locked onto the wall. And yeah, it, a lot of these filled with gas. So they agree. Oh, actually, there's a kind of cool line, I think it is. And Bond is saying like, oh, this is too easy. Of which Alex says, half of everything is luck, James. So Bond asks, and the other half? And at that moment, uh, the alarm goes off and Alex says, fate. Um, so they then start agreeing what they're going to do. Bond's like, I'll go set the timer for the bombs because the plan is for them to blow up the facility. So he'll say, I'll go and set it for six minutes. He goes to the giant gas canister, starts setting all these up. At the same time, Alec then kind of sets himself up and starts shooting at the, the soldiers that enter the room. And then I believe he then shuts the door and locks it so no one else can come in. Um, but at this point, uh, a colonel, I believe his rank is a colonel at this point, shows up and they're looking into the room but there's bulletproof glass so he orders the men to start shooting so alex is waiting for them to come in and they're shooting down all the glass eventually they do they start knocking it down so all the soldiers start flooding in alex starts shooting at all of them the door gets exploded that was locked before even more shoulders come in there's a little bit of like banter between bond and alec as well going backwards and forth and eventually bond i think says something like ah oh, there's a draft alex take care of it but he doesn't get a response, so there's a little bit of peeking, and he sees Alec on his knees with the colonel pointing a gun to his head. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> Sad, right? Yeah. So the colonel says, you've got 10 seconds to give up. So Bond hasn't come out yet, so he goes back and he changes the timer from six minutes to three minutes. And after he does that, he comes up with his hands up, and there's a little bit of shouting, and Alex says, do it, blow them all to hell, do it for England, James. 
And the colonel then shoots Alec in the head and he dies. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> so dramatic. Well, how's this all happened within like five minutes? <laughs> it's all gone very wrong. Yeah. Uh, so the everyone then starts shooting at Bond, of which this colonel says, stop. You're blowing... <laughs> There's so many lines in this film that will live in my head forever. And this is one of them where it's like, stop. You'll blow up the gas tanks. <laughs> <laughs> iconic line yeah <laughs> it's yeah. one of my favorite i mean a lot of this stuff that this guy says is my favorite i love this character um but yeah like that is something that as soon as he said it i got excited because that meant i knew i was watching Goldeneye. it's like stop you'll blow up the gas tanks <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway it does it you need to if that makes no sense to you at least watch the film to understand if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the film then yeah i'd, I'd worry frankly yeah. Yeah, so Bond then comes out a little bit, but he goes behind a trolley filled with a lot of smaller gas canisters. And he starts slowly rolling it across the room to try to escape. And we've got this room full of soldiers and the colonel just watching him, all the guns pointed. They're not allowed to fire because if they do, they might blow everything up. And we see a little, like, would you say it's a smirk? from the colonel oh yeah he's he's enjoying it he's finding it funny yeah he finds it quite amusing and it is like yeah it's all so quiet apart from this like squeaking of the wheels so one of the man one of the soldiers is really nervous and is shaking and he accidentally fires so the colonel just turns around and shoots him and kills him with this smile on his face watching it and then another great line bond stops because he can't go any further so the colonel's like you can't win <laughs> that's a good that's a good impression <laughs> so good this character is so good uh but yeah so bond then sees he's next to a conveyor belt so he he turns it on quickly jumps on it and starts shooting at the canisters near the wall and that causes all the canisters to just collapse on the soldiers and and give him a little bit of a, a, a way to escape but oh i love this scene so much <laughs> really <laughs> it's so no good idea. I just, I mean, so this is the introduction of, at the moment, uh, of a, of the colonel, um, who we'll see later. But just every moment he's on screen and when he talks is just fantastic. And I won't go into it too much because we see him quite a bit, but he's such, he's so much fun on screen. And the fact that he, like, smirks and is enjoying this, but, like, him playing off Bond, Bond being almost a little bit silly trying to escape with these canisters and the general enjoying that, but then shooting one of his men for almost like ruining the moment of the enjoyment i don't think he shot that soldier because they might have killed him i think they shot it because he was enjoying bond yeah. doing this yeah he ruined the scene he ruined the moment yeah and um, just having bond on the back foot here where he sees 006 get murdered in front of him and he's so horrendously outnumbered but he still finds this kind of almost silly but smart way of getting out of it it's just so it's very good. I like it. I was quite surprised at just how quickly the film kind of reveals its comedic side. Uh, I mean, we even like, from the first time we probably see Bond, you know, with the grin on in the toilet. Um, but the, what was even better is that most of the humour in this film actually works. And it's, it's nice to have these little... A, a lot of it is also just... Um, like timing comedic timing of things as well like so not so much in this scene but later on there's a lot of hard cuts and things like that which are meant to be a bit of a gag in themselves 
But with this one, it's, you know, the sound design, as I said before, this the sounds I hear works great with the squeaking trolley and the the guns rattling. And yeah, like, I'm just pleased that I was laughing at a lot of this Bond film and not for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I agree. It, it was surprising watching this film again and seeing how much humour is in there. But it is a different style of humour than what we've had in the past. And things are still clearly jokes but they don't feel as like, I don't know, exaggerated it in your face. They're, they're a little bit, well, some of the things, I guess, a certain uh, programmer, probably a little bit more mm, so. But yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it can put in that more subtle humor. And you're not necessarily laughing every time, but there's nothing here that really makes you groan. You either kind of like it and just kind of enjoy it as part of this kind of action film that isn't afraid to have a little bit of fun sometimes. Or it's just kind of, you know, you just take it as it is. So yeah, I kind of agree. It's It's interesting that they... This is a sillier film in a lot of ways than what we saw with License to Kill and arguably sometimes The Living Daylights. Probably not The Living Daylights, though, because that has the the cello skiing. <laughs> so that probably has it beat. But it's like it's not it's even like a different type of humor, right? Because Bond never really does a stunt like that. Not in the same way anyway. No, not really. No. No, because, yeah, there's nothing like that. But but anyway, so, yeah, so Bond has now ended up outside the facility after the conveyor belt has kind of shot him outside. It was almost like a, a docking thing. Um, so he's outside, and we see a plane on the airfield. So he's ended up on an airfield, and Bond sees the plane. And a load of the soldiers, the ones that he collapsed the gas canisters on, they've kind of gotten up, so they open up the main doors next to the conveyor belt, and Bond starts shooting at them a little bit, and... He sees the plane, so he starts running after it, starts sprinting. And there are a few soldiers, there's a couple of soldiers who are on motorbikes who start giving chase along with a load of the along with the colonel and the soldiers that were before who are running as well. So Bond sprints, he manages to reach the plane, wrestles the pilot out of it, and throws at both Bond and himself outside of the plane. So the plane is still moving forward, but Bond, because of wrestling the pilot, they've both fallen off. So I think Bond, while he was in the plane, shoots one of the guys on the bike to get rid of him. But the second one runs over the pilot and causes him to crash. So the bike is still okay. So Bond runs over, steals his bike and starts chasing the plane. At this point, the colonel orders everyone to stop and wait, saying like he won't make it. Because we see that they are on top of this massive mountain. And there's like an edge at the very end of the airfield. So that just kind of drops off quite drastically. So Bond is chasing after the plane and the plane goes off the edge of the mountain and starts diving. So Bond does the same on his bike. He comes, he goes flying off, he comes off the bike and he starts going into freefall and diving towards the plane. So he eventually does fall quick enough to get into the plane. He gets into the cockpit very quickly. We hear the sounds of the grrr, like the crashing sounds, the classic plane falling down and bond starts grabbing the, the the stick and starts pulling up and shaking and we see some shots like first person shots off the rocks down below and we then cut to behind one of the mountains where the plane disappears from few for a couple of seconds and then we see it swoop back up and fly over and the mines that bond had set up before the ones he set for three minutes they start exploding and bond flies over the base as it's all blowing up and that wraps up our sequence and oh that was <laughs> like this is just my favorite one um the the spy who loved me is fantastic the opening of that film 
But this just does it all and does it all so well. This whole stunt of Bond jumping off, it's another falling one, but it's so intense and cool. The idea of Bond jumping off of this plane and the setting in these like Russian mountains is just, it looks so good. It looks so different. It looks so distinct. Like it doesn't look like anything we've seen before. And it's just, uh, it's a bit of a thrill ride. A bit of a thrill ride, I'm going to say. Uh, I didn't really like it. Oh. No, no. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. It, I I think there's a few things you could knock it for, and I'm going to, because this is, you know, we're allowed to be nitpicky here. Mm-hmm. I think the actual stunt where he falls down into the plane was a little bit, I mean, it was 1995, so, but the, like, it looked a little bit bad as he's falling down alongside the plane. Um, but I think, yeah, everything else is just, just so good, so good, so um, so fluid. Like it's just constantly moving, and as you say, the setting is like this kind of snowy mountain tops, and then you've got this very kind of brutalist buildings and architecture of the the facility that they're in. Yeah, and then you you're even getting you know the the double O six elements in there, which will come back later on, and Oromov, and yeah, it's just. Um, it's really good. I don't really know. You've said it yourself. I don't really know what to add. It's just really good. Yeah, it's just great stuff. I think it's, you know me, you know why I like in an opening sequence. I like, I think the perfect one is where you get a really cool action stunt that stands by itself as something kind of unique and interesting and really cool. But also you're adding in the story elements to set up stuff, you know, one, you know, for the film. And this 100% does that. It also gives you a little bit of a different look at Bond with, like you say, 006 you get a sense of some of these characters and even then there's a little bit more character to these people than what we've already seen. Just the gen, like the Colonel smiling is enough. Um, but Bond itself and Piers Brosnan is such a great intro to him, which again, he, it's a more athletic Bond. He runs after a plane and gets into it. He throws himself off like two very high distances and get in. It's very different. It's very kinetic. It's very yeah, he's not afraid to kind of do that stuff. This isn't, this is cool, but it's called in a different way, not because he's so sitting there being like, like it, it's called in a very different way. And it just does what I think a Bond film needs to do, which is get you excited, get you really excited to watch this film. And it does that by starting off slow and building it up. It's just like, it's just 10 out of 10 stuff. As much as I love the Spy Who Loved Me intro, this is like my favorite and I don't see this being topped there's some good ones, definitely. Still got some good ones left, but mm. to me, this is like the perfect Bond intro. One thing I did think was I, I was really expecting as the plane, you know, he comes up in the plane and it swoops out of view, or you know, it goes out of view and then swoops back over the the mountainside. I really thought that was going to be Bond theme there, and I'm I'm really pleased it wasn't. Like you know, it's too early. It's too early for that. Um, but I think that's kind of that's quite indicative in itself of like they're not they're not gonna just waste the Bond theme on something willy nilly like they they're saving it and I think it's I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure like you only hear the big full one maybe once in this film yeah there's one specific the Saint Petersburg yeah. stuff yeah like and I'm, I, it just kind of shows some restraint and a little bit of a little bit of class there I like that I like that and that they're they're doing it cleverly. Yeah, and but the, we have heard elements of the Bond theme already. Yeah, just we've just, heard the remix and they've put it into it. So you, it, but that gives you enough, right? The that you know it's Bond. It puts that hint in there without shoving it in your face. 
that's it. I think this, the whole film will see kind of balances the the idea of there's a new Bond um, and there's new elements involved and there's a new M we'll see, but then they're also retaining old aspects as well and it's that old versus new which they have done a number of times now uh, where they've had a new Bond actor and a kind of reboot to an extent, but I think this is probably the best they've got it where they are giving you enough of the old and then introducing new stuff too. And the best thing about this this free title sequence is it blends so nicely into the the title sequence itself. Oh, oh that's I love bonus it. points. Bonus points there. I love it when it does that. So yeah, as the building is exploding in the background and you know, it's bonds flown off in the plane, the explosions of it turn into uh, a muzzle flash like a gun barrel muzzle flash of the the title sequence. Oh, Chef's Kiss. I mean, we thought the water was good, right, with Thunderball. This is, I mean, this is how you do it. Oh, man. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Okay. The The title sequence... Oh, just yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, finally. Finally, it's come. And it, there's no kind of... It's not difficult to see why when there is a new person that did these title sequences. It's the start of um, Daniel Kleinman doing them, I think his name is. And he's been doing them ever since now, uh, ever since Goldeneye. But, uh, man, this type, like this is... I complain so much about these title sequences. And we finally get what I, that I thought they'd always been like this. And so, yeah, it's, it's um, obviously a lot more they can do now with CGI and stuff. But you're getting... Uh, you're getting your usual stuff. You're getting your women in there. You're getting um, fire explosions. Kind of a, the whole background is like a sort of flaming, fiery ball inferno thing, which is great because it's just like we've said before. It's way more interesting to have this than just a, a pitch black background. And alongside this, you have actual connecting elements to the film, and which ties it all together and gives it a nice kind of thematic uh connection which is obviously the um the idea of time changing and the collapse of the ussr and so in this type of sequence you're getting uh hammer and sickle you're getting uh statues of lenin and starling crumbling and being destroyed by all the beautiful kind of silhouetted women with their big sledgehammers and you're getting a big eye because the film's called golden eye. So you have yeah, a big, big golden eye. eye yeah. <laughs> you have a big golden eye in the background. Um, there's just so much depth to this and where they're able to do more sophisticated effects and compositing. You're having people walking along a, a gigantic sickle and it looks good. Like there's no weird cutouts or matte lines or anything. It just looks great. Uh, oranges and turn into blues and it's always changing. It's always moving. Um, and you also have, uh, what's the one thing that stood out to me is like the double faced lady, which again ties into the film later on. And it's kind of a bit, bit of like a weird, like kind of unsettling visual of the gun coming out of her mouth. And, oh, it's just great. This is what they all needed to have been, but obviously they couldn't have done this back in the day, but this, this is top notch. Yeah. I think you made a really interesting point at the start there where you're saying, you assume this is what they all were. And I agree with you. Like, I 100% agree. They did such a good job at this one and it became the template. Yeah, you assume this is what they all were. But no, we had like 20 years of just like 
Do you want oh, to do the God. silhouettes again? All right, we'll do the silhouettes again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And that was it. So, but again, as you said, we get the women of silhouettes, but there was such a real effort to make this more cohesive and tie into each other. So there's still a lot of variety, but there's always something that ties each scene into the next. Like, as you say, it starts with a gun and the Buddha coming out and there's fire, and then there's kind of w- women posing in front of the fire. But then that kind of turns into more smoke as it goes into the Soviet stuff and all the symbols and everything here. But then when that goes away, the colors are still consistent. It's all, it's like it, there's a like visual consistency between the scenes. That means they do change stuff each time because what they change each one is different. So as you say, like once they go from orange, like it's orange for most of it, but then it goes more like purpley which also really stands out because it's such a dark, deep purple with this smoke behind it. You're just, oh, mm. it's so good. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's all fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's very obviously CGI, but I think they're very smart in the sense of there's almost like this kind of stylized element to it. Like what they use the CGI on doesn't really stand out too much. All the women are kind of real, but there's almost like this otherworldly element to these Bond openings anyway that they kind of get away with it so it's just so so smartly done that yeah it really set the template for these going forward yep i'm i'm so happy now going forward that i'm gonna be able to enjoy these and this is such a great one to to kick it all off i think song wise i don't really have surprisingly i don't really have too much to say about the song which is golden eye by tina turner um i think First of all, I was surprised that it was written by Bono and The Edge. I did not realise that. But when mm-hmm. it came up on screen, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we've kind of said before about how they've they've mimicked the whole Shirley Bassey feeling of a, of a Bond song. And they've done it here again. I mean, maybe the most ever, like, a Bassey song with Tina Turner. Um, it is kind of very over the top like that, but it does have those kind of plucky, suspenseful, kind of dun-dun-dun-dun. Like, that's all great. I don't know. I really don't have much to say apart from it's just very solid. I don't know if it's my favourite Bond song, but it's it's definitely a good one. Yeah, that, I think what you say there, something I really like about this song, because, you know, Licence to Kill, it's it's very similar style, you know. Mm. Licence to Kill was all about let's go back and redo those type of themes, but modernise it, and they do the exact same thing here, Although I feel like it, there's less '90s elements in this one, it's more—it's a little bit more timeless than I would say "License to Kill" in some ways. But it's a song that builds slowly, which I also love with these sort of Bond themes, and it ties very well in terms of what you're seeing on screen as well. It's all kind of slow, but then it gets bigger and bigger. And I think Tina Turner has such a great voice that she can actually pull off that Shirley Bassey style screaming golden eye. Like, <laughs> yeah. Before it was oh, yeah. all Goldfinger, but now we got someone else screaming golden eye and just going crazy with it. But she can kind of pull it off. There's this, the fact that it builds in this way, which License to Kill kind of did, but there was a much more deliberate effort to have it build and start slow and it start and it stays slow for quite a while you get like two verses of the more slower style and then it goes off so yeah it is definitely a song i get stuck in my head a lot and i do like to shout golden eye to myself sometimes um, in that <laughs> mood 
but yeah, I, w- I still wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but it's one of the ones I'm most excited by, mostly due to kind of nostalgia and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it is one I wouldn't really listen to that much, but it's, I do love it, uh, still. And I think it's, I do prefer it to kind of License to Kill, although at the same time, I, I could see why somebody would still prefer, uh, License to Kill over this. One thing that this doesn't have, which I'm pleased about, which I, I think License to Kill had maybe a little bit, because I remember you bringing it up, is that it doesn't have any sort of weird refrain or like weird chorus or weird section of it. You know how a lot of these bonds, well, not a lot, but some of them have had like Live and Let Die, where it sounds great, it sounds great, and then it has that weird reggae section. And this is all very consistent, and it's it's kind of what I want in a song. I don't want to be like have a like whiplash when it just changes tone really suddenly. Um, and one other thing I noticed is that with watching all these Bond films back to back, pretty much every Bond song is a bit of an earworm. I may not love them, but at least for the the few days after watching the film, they're still in my head. So, you know, credit where it's due. They, they know how to get something uh, memorable. Yeah, I can imagine you toe-tapping at work, singing all-time high to yourself. That People are like, Joe, stop singing all-time high. We're trying to get some work done here. Come on. If you're going to sing a Bond song, have, make it a good one. It's like, no. <laughs> no, I can't Never. help it. <laughs> oh, right, anyway, okay. So basically, title sequence, thumbs up from me. Finally, a good thumbs up. Um, after that, we get uh, nine years later, actually. We're, we're having a bit of a time jump after the pre-title sequence because, um, yeah, we're with Bond in the DB5. The DB5 is just, like, straight there on screen. Don't waste any time bringing back the classics. He's driving uh, driving it around these very bendy kind of hillside roads, which very golden, uh, golden, very Goldfinger-esque uh, in that sense, especially with the car and the location. Um, yeah, and Bond's in there with a female passenger. I think they're in Monte Carlo, actually. Yeah, I, I don't know if they ever say it. I'm sure they do at some point. But to me, this was just like, oh, that French. <laughs> I know yeah. everyone's French. But <laughs> I, I, I didn't know where this actually was taking place until afterwards when I looked it up. But yeah. I'm sure they did say it, but it's easy to miss. So, yeah, he's in the car bond with... I don't know if we got her name either, but there's a lady in the car with him who is uh, looking um, well, quite nervous at Bond's driving, and she's actually there to psycho-evaluate him. She's there to to see how Bond's doing upon orders from his uh, higher-up. Um, but anyway, yeah, as he's driving along these very bendy roads, there's another car that suddenly comes up next to him. Uh, it's a red Ferrari with another with a female driver in it, and... Very kind of flirty right off the bat between Bond and this this other driver kind of randomly coming into play and they're looking at each other through the window uh, and kind of egging each other on and eventually it kind of turns into a bit of a race between these two cars through these very windy, bendy uh, roads, um, kind of trying to outdo each other, trying to show off in front of one another. All whilst this poor, uh, <laughs> this poor woman... It's poor, like, evaluator who's in the car with Bond is, like, uh, panicking and very stressed at all this stuff going on around her. Because, yeah, eventually this race, like, they get into bits where they're, like, drifting around and skidding off and there's this uh, truck that they almost 
uh, the, the red car almost crashes into and then I think it's a tractor they, I want to say oh is it a tractor yeah it's pretty big either way and then later on there's this uh, big set of cyclists um who are all in a big group and uh they have to move out of the way very quickly for the cars to pass and they end up kind of like all falling over like dominoes as a bit of a bit of a gag um and nothing really happens too much in this scene apart from she drives off in the end the, the red ferrari uh <laughs> uh goes ahead bonds i guess just having a bit of fun with this and um the the evaluator is not very happy she's she orders bond to stop the car uh which he does and um you know says that you know he does listen to fem- female authority and suddenly uh reveals some nice chilled Bollinger in, <laughs> in the car. This little fridge opens up, which I guess is enough to to seduce the lady because uh, even though she seems very annoyed of him, typical Bond kind of charm, she suddenly kind of falls for him and they, they kiss. Um, and there's one thing that, one thing I haven't mentioned yet about this scene, but all whilst this is going on, all throughout the the, the race between these two cars, very strange music very strange music um it's in the same vein as a, as kind of what we heard in the sense of synthy electronic music but i didn't think this music worked here whereas for the mo- rest of the film i'd say the music did work i think this is one of the scenes where it just kind of stood out in the wrong way for me i think yeah it jumps around a little bit when it first kicks in it's terrible like it's this really weak, funky, like funky, yeah. yeah, yeah that's the word. <laughs> guitar bass. It's like this bouncy sort of thing because this is all supposed to be kind of funny. The idea that this evaluator is scared and Bond kind of flirting with this other woman and they're both kind of having this competition. So this is kind of the music's trying to be like action oriented but funny and it's it's horrible. Luckily, like, it does change a bit. Like, when it first kicks in, it's just like, oh, what is this? But then it does kind of change a little bit, and it's not quite so bad. But, yeah, very, very off. But luckily, it doesn't really outstay its welcome. No. But it's still, yeah, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, once, uh, once the lady's been impressed with the Bollinger, <laughs> we, uh, we cut to his night. It's Monte Carlo at night. Uh, at the casino, very fancy looking casino. Bond's there, uh, driving with his with his Aston, giving it to uh, giving it to the valet outside. All tucked up, looking great. I mean, if there's any question as to how Pierce Brosnan would look as Bond, which there wasn't anyway, but he looks great, you know. Um, and he does spot the red Ferrari outside, parked outside the casino, so he knows that the the lady's inside somewhere. Um, and he heads in and. We pretty much cut straight to a, a game of Baccarat. And I want, as a little uh, kind of just bit of trivia, I want to know, I'm gonna, I need to find out, maybe I need to look through subtitles or something. I want to know how many times in Bond films we have heard the phrase, set à la banque, because I feel like we've heard it so many times. <laughs> that one particular phrase to do with Baccarat is always the, the croupier, is set à la banque. It's like, what does that even mean? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But there it is again. Yeah. I think this one stands out as well because this guy has like quite a distinct French accent as well. 
Mm. Oh, yeah. So, um, um, yeah. Bond's already speaking French outside because Bond can speak every language, of course. Of course. Well, actually, I, I feel like French is probably within the realm of, of, you know, that makes sense. Maybe when he was speaking Japanese, eh, or, yeah, that, that probably didn't work as much. Um, no. Anyway, Bond, uh, Bond heads towards the Baccarat table where uh, the Ferrari driver is. She's sitting there. She's all... Um, Fancy, you know, got a very lovely dress on. She's smoking a cigar, uh, and she looks looks great. You know, looks she looks. I mean, it's kind of a bit early to say, but she does look kind of evil in a way. <laughs> like, like you know that she's can she's very kind of um, sharp jaw and like the makeup and everything. You know, this is going to be a very memorable character, and she she definitely is. Uh, but yeah, she's yeah, you playing. got some of that in the chase as well, right? When they're going backwards and forth, she gets very angry when she's not doing well in that race and yeah gets a bit frustrated and stuff so there's kind of like this streak to her like a bit of anger that you see yeah a little bit of a little bit of craziness we'll see as well <laughs> a oh, lot actually is that? <laughs> just a just a just a pinch just a smidge <laughs> anyway yeah she's winning uh at baccarat bond joins the uh the table and starts playing with her and they recognize each other and there's kind of a bit of back and forth and flirting between the two where they talk about sharing the same passions and um she wins the first round of this game of back rap um and then bond wins the next one uh which as you say she does not like losing because as soon as she loses she she kind of walks off she's done i think she says enjoy it while it lasts which reminds me of um khan from octopussy uh and when she goes to walk off bond follows her and they um they go and talk kind of just next to the table where Bond orders a drink. Uh, I, one thing to note as well is this whole setup in the casino, it looks, when I saw it, I thought, man, that looks so much like Casino Royale. Like the actual table and the like the way everyone's sitting around it, or sorry, standing around it, and the, even like the little barrier around the table. And then it sort of like, it clicked like, oh, right, that's <laughs> probably the same director is the reason why it looks so similar. Um I always forget he came back for Casino Royale. I wasn't thinking uh, Casino Royale, although it totally makes sense what you're saying. To me, this was giving me strong Doctor No. Doctor No, vibes. yeah, that too. Mm. I think that was the one they might have been like. If we could have like get some CGI smoke on top of this, <laughs> it would have yeah. been just like the Doctor No scene. Um, but yeah, that's the one that I was reminded more of. But you're right, Casino Royale is probably the the better comparison. Yeah, I mean, with hindsight now, but you're right, Doctor No, even. I can't think of the character's name. Now, Bond's girlfriend he had in the first two characters, that's pretty much um, on a top in this scene. Uh, and her name is on a top because, yeah, in this little, uh, the next scene with Bond and her out at the table, um, Bond orders a drink. And we get the fastest ever, like, back-to-back Bond tropes, I feel like. So uh, Bond orders a, a vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. He says it himself. Uh, and then she gets a drink as well. Uh, then he asks... Uh, so she asks what his name is, and he does the whole Bond, James Bond. So that's two. We've got two done. Drinks, you know, Martini, and then Bond, James Bond. Third one, he asks what her name is, and she goes, she says it's Xenia on a top, or on a top, Xenia on a top, and which sort of takes him back a little bit on a top. And that's the third Bond trope, is the, the funny female kind of double entendre name. And it's just like, wow, they really didn't waste any time getting those in. It's very much in, in the span of... 30 seconds, you had them all. 
I like it though. It's it's a little bit more casual, but yeah, this is this whole scene as a whole is all about like you know, we we talked about how this is a mix of new and old. This is like let's go all in on the old. <laughs> like, yeah, get out of the way. Yeah. Remember Bond? He's back. <laughs> and they kind of get all that stuff out there, which I think is cool. The honor top stuff, I was a little taken back by because I don't remember it, but that's because I think as a kid I simply didn't get it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's some, there's definitely some risque things, not just the name. There's definitely some risque things coming up for that character for a Bond film, anyway. Um, he recognizes, I think he he knows where she's from. He he guesses that she's from Georgia based on her accent, and he mentions about the license plate of the Ferrari and how uh, the license plate should start with a a different letter, even if it's a fake one. You know, implying he knows it's a fake license plate, which kind of gets under her skin a little bit. And um, I think she starts to ask, oh, what's your rank at the the Department of Motor Vehicles? And he goes to say commander. And as he says that, this other man kind of comes into the scene and interrupts and and walks off with uh, on a top because he's an admiral. So uh, he outranks Bond in that sense. But yeah, this admiral just comes by and... Um, and they they walk off. This was really great, I think. This was very... As I said, this is very much trying to invoke older Bond and getting all that stuff out there. But I kind of yeah. like that they took this more concentrated approach, and I think it really shows how good Pierce Brosnan is as James Bond. <laughs> he can do it all. Yeah, that he can go in as a tux, go in and, you know, we've already seen him be a lot more athletic and different and explosive and more of that doing that spy work. And now we're kind of straight away seeing him in the tux in a casino, winning, acting all cool and casual, ordering his drink, also being a little bit cocky as well. It's kind of insane how he's able to pull all of this off and have it work so well. Now, I don't want to go back a little bit. I'm not too sure how I feel about the Aston Martin. I get why they did it. But I think maybe it's a little bit too much for me and on the nose. And the mm. fact that it isn't even the car for this film. Like, I think after this scene, we never see it again. So that's a little bit strange. But even so, it's kind of like so enjoyable. It gave me strong Dr. No vibes. But also it like twists it on his head where before it was Bond sitting down and they go to him on the table winning and stuff. Now it's kind of Bond entering the casino and approaching this this woman who's quite aggressive it's but still so cool and confident it's 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 it's, once again it's very good stuff very good stuff and a great looking casino you know i like to rank the casinos and of course ever since the terrible looking one from one of measure secret service this is this is up there this is a very fancy looking casino and uh it uh fits the bill yeah just it just everything that it kind of needs to it's it's very old school bond while also setting up this new character and this very new type of Bond girl, because uh, Onatop is like smoking a giant cigar at the table. Mm. Oh yeah, but I I like the back and forth between these two. It's all very again, it's very cool. It's very sophisticated. You know, this isn't like a few to a kill where Roger Moore's talking to uh, Jenny Jenny Flex. Oh, oh, the horse rider. Yeah, and they're just like casually just burning oh. through onomatopoeias or like sexual <laughs> innuendos just burning through them. This one has all of that stuff, but it's, it, again, it's it's a bit more cool. It's a bit more, it's kind of casual, but cool at the same time. It's uh, Yeah, 
It's really great stuff. It just feels more natural, really, which is, which really helps. So speaking of not being natural, we then cut to two French women outside doing like this silent, dull <laughs> show. <laughs> I love how you say dull. <laughs> dull, yeah, like, yeah, so... It's supposed to, you know, this is supposed to be quite a rich area. So this is like outside area of all these steps and it's one woman kind of acting as a doll and the other one's kind of meant to be controlling her. So they just kind of like one woman gives the other one the rose and then kind of like commands her to give the rose to someone and everyone claps and I don't know what that's oh my about. God. But It was yeah. a doll. I thought you were just saying it was doll. No, doll. I, d- I didn't even get your pun there. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> it did look dull. <laughs> It did a bit look dull. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, wow, how did they do that? Wow. Oh, it's so artistic. Yeah, it was a bit not great. But nearby we see Bond's on these near these steps and is looking out on the harbour. And he gets these binoculars out. And oh, these binoculars are great because they're like high tech spy ones, but they've got the like green text all around <laughs> because we get the first person view of what Bond is seeing. And you get all that like very classic green text, uh, which is kind of cool. Mm. When it said transmitting on there, I did. I was like, what the hell? Why do binoculars need to transmit? And then it clicked later on. <laughs> yeah. Didn't take I'm glad there. we've moved away from like the face binoculars that Timothy Dalton's films always had where they would strap one of these onto the face and then zoom in. Now it's like actually a proper pair of binoculars, which works quite a bit Mm. better. So Bond is using these binoculars to look on the harbour and he sees on a top and the Admiral is there on the dock and they get into a little speed boat and then drive to their actual ship that is docked. But as Bond is looking at them, he's kind of zooming in and he's taking pictures using the binoculars so he's doing some spy work and he takes a picture a picture of her and then zooms in on this wooden case that says manticore on it which now that we're talking about it i've absolutely no idea what that was i think i took that as being the name of the boat oh but then yeah that was the photo on the small boat so i assume it just had this the big boat has the same name i guess but I thought it was like a wooden case that they could open and would have something in it. Oh. Then why would it say manticore? I don't know. <laughs> I, d- I didn't think about that at all, but now that I am, it- I don't know when it comes back. What, the name manticore or the boat? The, Just the the, that picture that he took. What is, why did he do that? What, is it, like, what does he get from that picture? Oh, um... I think Moneypenny says something about it when he goes back to the car, but it's probably not very substantial. Oh yeah, I wasn't listening to that. Poor <laughs> Moneypenny. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, so he's got these pictures. So he goes back to his Aston Martin and he turns on the radio, which starts printing out the pictures that he just took. And we hear a recording from Moneypenny. I took it as a recording. It's like a transmission, but it's not like a phone or anything. I think Bond has sent these to MI6. And now he's getting a report back on what he sent. And the voice or Mighty Penny explains that this is Senior Onotop and is an ex-Soviet pilot and is associated to the Yanis group. I don't think Mighty Penny goes into any more details about that. No, not really. Um, but she says, go and investigate, but we don't want you to make any contact with her without prior approval. 
And Money Penny then says, "I trust you'll stay on a top of things." <laughs> on a top, on a, on a top of things. It's kind of like you didn't need to say that, Money Penny. We got, we got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of works for me because I feel like it's aware of how stupid that name is. Yeah, like it's almost like Money Penny is mocking that name even though it's a really forced and kind of cringy pun. But it, it's just enough self-awareness for me where I didn't mind it. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, Money Penny in that sense is is us, is the audience, and just poking holes at the... I guess, yeah, th- this is the old this is the old Bond. This is the old elements of Bond that, that now kind of stand out even more so in 1995. Yes, definitely. But it's not like they're not mocking it massively. You know, it's not like a strawberry field situation or anything like that it's kind of having it there but just kind of being a little bit more self-aware about it and i think that works quite well in terms of you know what this film is about Mm. so then we cut hard cut to uh senior in bed i'm assuming she's on top of the admiral because of the pun but (laughs) i didn't write that down (laughs) i hope so yeah so yeah so she's in her underwear and was in the underwear they're they're getting a bit frisky inside this inside the Admiral's cabin in his in his double bed and getting very aggressive. So she's like biting him on the chest and he's like, Oh, this is great. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm loving this. Oh, good stuff, this. <laughs> and she's then scratching his chest and he's like going like rah and stuff, I think, and they're like he- lots of heavy breathing and Senior then flips him over. And locks his like frame, uh, yeah, like the size of his, yeah, his sides with her her legs, and starts kind of like pulling him back in like this lock, and then we get a look at the guy's face where he's like, I can't breathe, and she starts to laugh, and as that's happening, and we see the shadow, we saw somebody else take the admiral's ID from his jacket. And just before we kind of cut away, because she's now basically killing the Admiral, she quickly, like, screams yes very loudly in a very, like, I'm getting off in this kind of way. And then it quickly uh, cuts away from the scene. And She's having a great time. Yeah, like, I'm not super into these scenes. I don't know who would be. Um, <laughs> but uh, I kind of always kind of not look forward to these. But the thing that is somewhat nice about this is that it's pretty quick. Like, the whole point is that she's a bit of a sicko and she kind of, her gimmicks of killing people is to crush them with her thighs, which she's quite effective at, it seems. Um, but yeah, it's like a little bit much for me, but it's like quick, you know, and it established her character. So yeah, it's not too bad. I wonder if, uh, how much of that character and their, you know, her gimmick of thigh crushing <laughs> yeah. is from uh the living daylights because they do mention in that film um i think it was a kgb agent then but uh yeah kgb agent who a female agent who crushes people with her thighs oh i don't remember that but it's the exact same thing it's when it's when bond is asking uh q to like or maybe money penny to look up the the Sniper. Oh yes, film. yeah, and Q's going through. Yes, I remember. Yeah, that. and one of them I think was like someone who, but I think in, I think the, the picture that comes up is like quite a big lady, 
So um, maybe they took inspiration from that. I don't know. Yeah, potentially. But this basically sets her up as the henchwoman of the film. Mm. Uh, We're getting another henchwoman rather than a henchman. And her thing is kind of being very aggressive and very, uh, yeah, like uh, I'm trying to find the right phrase of it. I don't want to say sexually aggressive because I don't think that's, but sexually aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, sexually aggressive. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe it's because for me as a kid when I was watching this, I didn't quite understand what was happening. I was just I don't know what this is. Ah. And maybe I'm still holding on to that. (laughs) There's there's something deep down there, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I'm not like super into... I like her as a character overall, but I'm not super into some of these scenes where we have to see like a hairy, bald admiral get bitten and scratched by her and then killed in bed. Yeah, as I say, I think this is the most risque they've really gone on a Bond film in terms of showing people, you know, in that in that environment. Um, however, I think just they they really just go all in with this character, and I do appreciate that. Like she is so uh, memorable and just crazy. She's just, but not crazy in a like dastardly villain way, you know, like a, a, maybe an older Bond film would have had. But crazy is in like, I don't know. She's 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 not all there, I suppose. No. <laughs> so, but the thing is, like, this is somewhat what I wanted with like Christopher Walken's character with Max Zorin, where she's a psychopath. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely psychopath. But you you just get it. Like, you don't need to be like, well, she was raised by Nazis. And <laughs> here's oh God, here's yeah. her Nazi dad. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> like, they just have her like, no, she's she's crazy. Uh, she just loves hurting people. Uh, but it works really well. I think uh, the actress does a really good job uh, playing it and selling it. And they add in all these little moments of character with her where there's no deep backstory. There's nothing complex going on here. It's just like a beautiful woman who's an ex-KGB agent. So likes hurting people as part of that. It's, and that works really well. The character is more from her betrayal and the small moments rather than like the actual backstory. And I'm glad we didn't really get a proper backstory. I think that makes her more effective and interesting in a, in an odd way. Sadistic is the word I was trying to think of. That's the the word. Yes. Yes. So the next morning we see uh, Bond boarding the, um, the Manticore. I think that, I think the yacht, yeah, the Manticore, um, he, he gets on kind of sneaks on. He's wearing, um, he's wearing this like blue jacket. Really reminds me of Roger Moore. Did he wear something similar to that? I don't know. But um Oh I think he might have done. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's like a been? like a boating jacket. I don't know was, what was like... it the spy who loved me? Was it the oh, beginning of that? Possibly. Possibly, yeah. Uh so yeah, he um he sneaks onto the ship or the the boat and uh he also spots a jet ski leaving it and heading to a uh, naval vessel that's been docked nearby um, and a a helicopter on it and as he's looking he sees a reflection in something it's a shiny thing and realizes there's a there's a a guard behind him and takes him out with a towel i think uh and kind of throws him down the stairs deals with him um meanwhile at that naval vessel that's docked there's all this sort of hubbub 
going on. There's lots of people there. There's a band playing. And uh, the Admiral, or the, you know, the Admiral uh, is there with uh, on the top, um, being greeted by all these uh, kind of Navy, you know, high, high-ranking Navy men, um, captains and whatnot, uh, because they're there for a, a, a demonstration. They're preparing for a demonstration of the helicopter that's aboard that ship. I want to go and, back a little bit just before you explain this bit, but yeah, it's a very quick scene of Bond fighting that guy on the boat, but it's it's really effective. I really love this. It's the small details, though, right? And that's what this film gets right, mm. where, yeah, it's a bit silly for Bond to take someone out with a towel, but he kind of wraps the guy round and then throws him down the stairs using it. And then because Bond has been in a fight, he just taps his forehead to wipe the sweat quite casually. <laughs> Yeah. And then moves on. And ah, oh, that little small detail makes it all work and come together and give it gives it that bond kind of spin. Even though like, you know, it's nothing amazing this fight, but I love that little detail there. It's so cool. Yeah, it's good balance. And he really sells it. Yeah, you know, he could he could take you out of a town. Don't you worry about that. Um so yeah, uh back on the yacht as Bond is exploring the bedroom and he he's looking around and he opens up the closet and the admiral's body falls out of it. It's quite a quite a disturbing kind of uh, scene. As like, yeah, he just falls out, and um, well, I say disturbing, and then it cuts to his face, and his his face is like froze, frozen in pleasure, um, which is kind of funny. But yeah, uh, he's obviously his body's been hidden, and there's a there's a fake admiral uh, aboard the ship right now. Um, on that ship, there's a there's a guy that is announcing. What they're all there for that that demonstration? It's a it's a new Tiger helicopter, which um, it's really fancy. It's the state of the art. It's got all this stealth tech. It's it's uh, protected against radiation and you know electromagnetic pulses and all that sort of radar jamming, all that sort of stuff. It's it's top notch. You know, it's, you really want you really want to get this top of the shelf stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, everyone's there ready to to watch it take off. Um, Zenya. I don't know whether to go by Zenya or on a top. How are you going to say it? I was going to go Zenya, but okay. I don't want to say senior warrior princess because it's not the same. <laughs> no, okay. So that's, that's how right. I think you normally hear her because the on a top is just for the joke. So I normally go senior, but I don't want to say Zen. That, that's very close. It's not the warrior princess. There's like an I in there, apparently. I'm going to keep saying on a top. I've just decided. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll <laughs> join you on that one. She's uh, She's down kind of below the the top deck um all dressed up looking very doled up because uh two the two pilots that are about to go into the helicopter they are walking towards it and she's there um distracting them you know hey boys that sort of thing and they're all uh <laughs> eyes popping out of the head cartoon-esque uh, am i in heaven i think one of them says and uh, that's when she goes you will be or something like that and just shoots them point blank she shoots both of them and disguises herself as a pilot and so she and this other pilot we don't know who the other person is um they walk onto the deck and enter the helicopter instead uh and begin the demonstration or at least at least that's what people think and um they start flying off uh obviously bond is is clocked onto this and he's made his way back to this naval ship this docked ship and he runs in trying to trying to stop it and he, i guess he looks a bit like a madman like no one knows who he is he starts to run in and he's quite quickly stopped by uh security there 
because they're all there clapping away and they don't have a clue what's going on. And then the film fades to black, which is kind yeah. of... I, I, that, that stood out to me. I don't think the film's ever done such a, a, a very slow fade to black. Yeah, it gives this whole scene a kind of like a TV drama feel. Yeah. Where you expect like some adverts to come in. Like, hey kids, get the new cereal! Because it like <laughs> disappeared. Like, if it was a very like TV drama or like 90s TV drama. It's, I kind of like it, but it's it's very different. Like this whole scene is the one that I kind of forget because once the film gets going, it's just like you just never are thinking about, oh, remember when they steal the helicopter? It's like, no, <laughs> not mm. really. Uh, but I still kind of like it. I like for some of the reasons that I said about A Few to a Kill, where we're getting the henchwoman right up front, but also they just win and Bond loses. So yeah. Bond just kind of is trying to stop something but doesn't and nobody else knows it. It has a kind of a cool feel to it there. So it's like, yeah, again, it's pretty forgettable as far as the scene goes, but I, I like the approach. It's very a few to a kill in my eyes, but in some ways kind of better. Yeah, and I think the fade to black for what comes next, it definitely creates this good separation because for a lot of this film, we kind of have two plots, not not plots mainly, maybe perspectives is a better word to say, um, going on alongside each other for a long time. Um, and... Yeah, this is kind of the start of it where you're getting this, the A plot, if you want to say like that, with Bond, and then you're getting this kind of B plot with uh, Natalia, it turns out to be. Yeah, for sure. But they like jump between each other in a very smart way. Mm. It's, uh, it's cool. But yeah, again, this whole scene, pretty forgettable, but it's like good. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just not what you think of when you think of this film. Remember the Monte Carlo stuff? Remember that? <laughs> Yeah, it does get a bit um, overshadowed. So yeah, after this fade to black, we uh, we are at uh, Sevenaya. Sevenaya? <laughs> that sounds that. right. I don't know. There's some A's. <laughs> I like I'm, I'm going to say that wrong so many times. There's, there's a lot of, yeah. Uh, Russia. We're in Siberia, basically, at a space weapons control center. Uh, this place with a big radar dish, satellite dish on the top of it. Um, it's another text on screen, though, isn't it? But it's like... I think a little bit late again. They do the same thing where it doesn't, you don't cut and the text is on screen. They cut, you get like some husky dogs in the snow. Yeah. And then when they give you the big shot, that's when they put the text on screen, which is like, oh, it's such a small thing. But I think it's awesome that they do that. Yeah. And it's just clever camera work as well because I, I like a lot of the camera work in this film, but it's just little things, you know, it pans down. So we're sort of getting the idea that they're in this bunker almost or underground anyway a secret facility you'll, you'll get the idea that this, this is uh you know, something very special is going on inside here because you do see inside this place and it's full of computers full of big screens full of those of people working um and given that we're in russia you're like oh this can't be very good <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we see uh this lady on the computer um Natalia is her name. I'm just going to say it now because it's easier to re refer to as Natalia, um, who is like a programmer. I guess she's she's giving instructions to this computer. Um, and I kind of like how this is a bit, it, it's a very dramatic location in the sense of this is this weapons control facility in Russia and you're in a Bond film. But then you also just get a bit of play between her and her colleagues. Um, one of them is, is next to her called Boris, uh, who she's kind of constantly annoyed at and 
kind of they they joke around and there's like this other woman behind her who they make fun of this Boris guy together. It's very um just very like down to earth very quickly. You actually get a bit of humanity in these characters, whereas it could have just been um, you know, people in the background and, and this is an evil place and they're doing evil things. But actually no, there is a there's a focus on actually making these people feel real. Um which is really good. I like that. Uh, yeah, it's surprising how you know, I think I've complained, I think, The Living Daylights when there was stuff happening without Bond and how that didn't work for me. So I was kind of surprised how much this does work. And I think it's for what you say, there's a little bit more of a down-to-earth. You're seeing how this facility runs, but they feel quite like people. There's jokes, they're being kind of dumb towards each other and it's their habit. But there's also a load of stuff that is re- referenced later in the film. So it's like multi-purpose in like many different ways. It's setting up the characters. It's giving it this more grounded feel to make what happens next. You feel that more and also setting stuff for later in the film. It's just, feels like very smart kind of storytelling and, and filmmaking. And it's just surprisingly, I think the acting is probably a big part of it as well. It's just kind of charming to see these people work and bounce off each other. It's uh, it's yeah, it's just well done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the computer, um, Natalia, uh, she's interrupted by this sort of prank hack onto her screen, uh, which is, yeah, that's from Boris, the, the guy next to him. And his sort of thing is like he likes to set these little pranks and there's passwords to unlock them. So he, he gives her a, a, a clue, which I think the answer is knockers. I think it's something yeah. doors and the answer is knockers. Um, yeah, it's like uh, they're, they're, it's something like they're right in front of you, can open very large doors. Yeah. <laughs> what a nerd right uh, <laughs> but yeah he is he's kind of presenting himself as this this genius this genius hacker uh because he he ushers uh natalia over to look at his screen and he's um currently hacking into the u.s department of justice on his computer and calling them all slugheads as he does <laughs> so you know he's he's really he's loving it as he's doing this and he's very are you not going to try the accent <laughs> um maybe for one line but i don't think i could do it for that all right <laughs> uh but yeah his thing is he can uh he sends them he spikes them basically uh i don't you know it's it's just a lot of it is movie hacking mumbo jumbo but the idea is is he he spikes them and then uh he can kind of trace back and 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 block them from kicking them out sort of thing so Basically, he's he's really good. He's really good at doing that. And um, there is also an element of there's a there's a password needed for this as well because this comes back later on. And it's this uh, I can't actually remember what the clue is. It's something about you. Oh, you sit on it, but you don't take it with you. Is, yeah, is the uh, the clue. And we don't know what it is yet, but he types it in. And um, yeah, he he manages to sort of uh, stop their counter. And and yeah, that's when he sends him a message calling them all slugheads, uh, and that's when you get the his other catchphrase. He has lots of Boris has a lot of um, lines, you know. There's a lot to him. <laughs> Where he's, I am invincible. Yeah, uh, yeah, there it is. And um, <laughs> when he does that, she's not really that impressed. Natalia, uh, she goes to get some coffee, and uh, he goes out for a cigarette. Yeah, you get shots of like. Because this is someone who's like such a big nerd hacker, thinks a lot of himself. So when he shouts that, 
every no one reacts but people just kind of turn around look at him and then get back to work but he's just yeah. there with a big old smug smile on his face because <laughs> he yeah. stood up and he's like posing with his arms to his side like <laughs> as well like he's like yeah i'm invincible and no one cares it's no a, one cares it's another one of those small comedy moments that works really well because of yeah it just works so well yeah so boris has gone outside in the cold to get a cigarette while she's in the kitchen to get coffee and we see Boris is outside and sees a helicopter land right next to him. And it's the the helicopter from before, the Tiger attack helicopter. And on the top, and the Colonel from before, Colonel Uromov, I think his name is. Although at this point he's now a general, we find out later, so General Uromov. And yeah, they get out. So the, I... The second person must have been the general then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. I know that sounds like an obvious question, but in my head... Okay. So, yes, yeah, so Natalia's in the kitchen still making coffee, and we see Onotop and Oromov enter the base. The The general speaks into a voice recognition device at the door, so he says his name, and it confirms, and he's allowed to enter the base. So the officer in charge goes and greets him, gives him the old salute, of which Urimov is like, well, we're here to test fire the, the satellite weapon, the Golden Eye. And the officer says, well, the satellites are in orbit and we'll be ready to fire in a few minutes. And the Urimov is saying, I need the access key. I need the coast to fire it. And I'm timing you. So hurry up. Let's get going. Um, I think he also says that, yes, this is an unscheduled test fire because the officer is like, we weren't aware of any tests. But he's like, well, this is a surprise one to... Uh, see if everyone's ready and everyone's readiness for this so the officer goes and gets this key card and then has to like print his hand because there's there's a lot of process here to firing this weapon so urimov gives him a key card which then he uses with his handprint to get access to another key and then he has this large disc that has like an orange ball in the middle i can't really describe it any other way it's like this thick square that looks very like high tech or at least at the time it was probably high tech nowadays the fact that it's so big and clunky makes it look <laughs> like a relic it looks like a like a video game prop to me I don't, I don't know it just looks too big yeah it's like if you've got yeah it's like a yeah it's too big as you say like nowadays we know that technology is more impressive smaller but back then i guess they were like make it big and put a giant orange ball in the middle <laughs> that would also, be cool I also love how where this guy gets it from. Like when they when the Russians were designing this base, they're like, "Well, what should we do? Like, where should it go? What should it look like? Just make it look like a big eye." Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> it's called golden, golden eye. eye, even. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy gets all this. He gets two keys and he gets this big orange disc and hands them over to Urimov. And at this point, on a top starts shooting. So she shoots the two guards or two or three guards. And then all the office workers we saw, she just starts shooting them as well. And as she's doing that, she seems to be, well, getting off on it again, really enjoying it. And we get a little moment of the general looking over, looking a bit concerned. (laughs) 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 Like she's super enjoying murdering all these people, all these innocent people. And he's just like, hmm, a bit, all right. Yeah, is this a good idea? I I'm not going to say anything, but I'm not. Hmm. <laughs> it's just a bit much. Yeah. 
And we get a shot of all these corpses dead on the ground with like blood on their faces and stuff because they've all been murdered. So they then go inside the base and using the big old golden eye key and the two small keys, they then set it to fire. And it again, it's very process driven. So they turn it on. They have to do a sync of the two keys. They have to turn it at the same time. So it's a three, two, one, go. And then they turn it on. And when they do that, a laser kind of comes out from the control panel and shoots at the map of the world. So there's this big map of the world uh, as the main screen in the area. So uh, on the top then starts setting the target and they set the target for the area they're in. So you see the name come up. So they are setting to fire at themselves. And at this moment, we then cut to space where we see the satellite is preparing because it's a satellite uh, weapon. So that is now being prepared to fire in space. At that moment, they hear a noise in the kitchen. So they go to investigate. But one of the people who was shot wasn't quite dead. So they hit the alarm and then on the top shoots them and kills them. But Uramov says, don't worry about it. Their best response time is 19 minutes, so they're going to be too late. And there's, uh, Onotop is still going to investigate the kitchen, though, so Natalia is panicking, going to hide. She goes to open the vent at the top and starts opening that up. We then cut to Onotop entering the kitchen. Can't see her, but she sees some coffee on the ground, looks up, see the vent has been opened, so shoots into the vent. Again, enjoys that too. And we see Onotop and the general take these keys, the activation keys they have, leave on the helicopter, and then the fighter jets are on the way. So, yeah, again, it's it's another, it's those small character moments that I think really make this. It's Urumov being concerned by Onotop, looking at her, mm. being like, hmm. It's those small moments I ever thought, and it's her just shooting people and enjoying it. It's not a lot of in your face characterization, it's just all these small moments that make these characters so memorable. And that's just what I think this film exceeds at where the John Glenn and most Bond films actually fail. It's kind of like what we said about the guy in Doctor No. I can't remember the guy's name and I feel really bad. The henchman in that. Not the henchman, sorry, the the ally. Oh, um, uh, Quarrel. Quarrel. Yes, it's that type of characterization almost, where you don't get a ton of info about the person, but you get all these small people that help separate them and, and make them stand out. We get that here, and I think we already talked about this a bit, but this film is full of that, and it makes these kind of scenes kind of help stand out, and these characters kind of pop and become more memorable than they might have been otherwise. Yeah, I also really liked uh, the camera. The camera work in particularly to the bit with uh, on a top in the the kitchen as she's looking around, because it just stood out to me. It's is almost it was almost like handheld. Um, it was really really fast and and kind of swooshing over them. And I yeah I don't think we would really have ever seen the camera get that close and move so quickly before. And it just goes to show like this is a new director. We're getting a new sense of of um, visuals in this film. And it it really helps, you know, that's these sort of scenes are the time to use this where it's intense and kind of, you know, someone's being looked uh, like watched or, or tried to be found. And it's um it's it's good. I, I like how th- this whole film just feels so much less static than previous mm. Bond films. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think part of that, this this scene isn't the best example of it, but while we're on this topic, the set design and the lighting and the cinematography just is so much more interesting than anything we saw in the John Glenn era. Mm. So I think this one, just the 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 way it's kind of quite dark and stuff, and the way it's it just everything's just more distinct and just interesting to look at. So it's yes, that camera work really helps and it brings a lot to the film. But also, what we're actually just looking at is more interesting. There's not a ton going on here, really. But I think the set design is just a clear step up. That even this kind of scene is quite just interesting to have on screen and to be be looking at everything that's going on. Yeah, 100%. We then move on to London. We're at the MI6 building. This might be the first time we see that building. The one that does become the MI6 office. Oh, actually. the iconic one that blows yeah, the up one, that one time. Yeah, yeah right. next to the Thames. Yeah, um, and Bond is there. It's it's late. It's it's uh, after hours, you know, after usual working time at least for money penny because um bond's there and he, he sees money penny who's there to greet him and um take him to go see uh m bond's been asked to go there to go to the situation room as something's come up and yeah this is our first look at a new money penny she's there she's all dressed up because uh she was caught in the middle of a date and <laughs> had to come back to the office to not frankly not really even do that much i think bond could have just got there on his own but um yeah, this new money penny. Uh, very quickly, you kind of—it's not a complete change of the the carrot, like the relationship between Money Penny and Bond, because there is still very much a level of flirtiness and a bit of play and wordplay and and all that. But it's definitely brought um, into the the time of this movie. You know, it, it was modernized in the sense of Money Penny is very quick to to sort of say like some of the things Bond says would qualify as sexual harassment. And it's like, oh, well, I don't think the old Money Penny would ever have said that. Um, I can't think of the actress's name that plays this new Money Penny. Samantha Bond. Samantha Bond. Bond. Wow, look at that. Uh, but yeah, I really, you don't really spend much time with Money Penny in this film, sadly. But um, just this first little scene with her as Bond's taking him to, um, uh, sorry, she's taking Bond to the Situation Room and the little back and forth they have is really nice. I think so as well. I was kind of surprised because whenever I think of Samantha Bond's Money Penny, I think of a certain sunglass or glasses oh, scene. That really that's when of, they, yeah. Yeah, that really brings her down. But her yeah. characterization is actually quite different in this one where we get a little bit of a mix between the old version of Money Penny and what they were trying to do with the Timothy Dalton films with uh, Caroline Bliss. Where Caroline Bliss was very much a <clears throat> someone who was like incredibly into Bond, but she was supposed to be more like a competent actual employee, <laughs> like yeah. somebody who actually worked and was part of an intelligence agency. Where the old Money Penny was just like the woman behind the desk saying, "In you go, James." <laughs> like it was, um, but she was very flirty with James, and there was a respect between the two, and they bounced off each other. So they've kind of combined the two, where this is like a more active kind of actual intelligence officer, Money Penny, but also someone that can stand toe-to-toe, and they kind of go backwards and forwards between each other. Um, because you get lines like where Bond's like, ah, oh, what would you ever do with... What would I ever do without you? And she's like, well, as far as I'm aware, you've never had me. Uh, it's... It's that type of flirting. Um, 
you know, they made a real effort to make her a bit more girl power, for lack of a better term. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it works well. I think Pierce Brosnan and Samantha Bond bouncing back like this make it work. And I was kind of surprised because, again, yeah, I have not great memories of this Money Penny. So the fact that they characterize her in this film is actually, I think, a really good job of, again, new but old mixing those two. Uh, it's just a shame where it goes in later films. But in this one, quite good, quite enjoyable. Yeah. And, you know, she even. Money Penny goes on dates, okay? All right? She's Get over there. it, guys. Yeah. She's not just sat at her desk all the time. She's her own independent woman. She goes on dates. She doesn't need Bond. She don't need but no Bond. A little bit. She needs Bond a little bit. Though. Well. Like, yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Bond does go into the situation room, which is just, you know, the room with all these big screens and panicking looking people. Um, but there's Tanner. Tanner is there. Again, I completely forgot that tanner was in this film i didn't even realize that he was tanner uh but he is he you know introduces himself or bond says hi tanner um and he's there to tell bond about what's happened uh what we just saw go on in seven yaya um about how they intercepted a distress call which is the alarm that that um the the employee uh rang before being shot down again um and they've basically got this satellite feed on a big screen in the room uh, it's like a live camera feed of the area like a bird's eye view and they found the helicopter they can see the helicopter on there um that bond tried to stop back in monte carlo and i can't remember what causes tanner to say about calling m the evil queen of numbers i can't remember the prompt for that yeah it's kind of like i think turner says or tanner sorry says the bond like oh, we found your helicopter. It looks like your hunch about this was right. It's too bad the evil queen of numbers wouldn't let you, you know, act on your hunch. Right. Okay. Right. That's actually, yeah, that is that is quite important as well because, yeah, the evil queen of numbers, uh, <laughs> as he says that, uh, M, this is a bit like, <laughs> yeah, uh, M, M does come in as he says that and kind of standing right behind him. It's like, oh, awkward. <laughs> bond given the old sort of like gesture to shut up um but yeah we we see him we see so many like new new money penny new tanner well have we even had tanner before i don't know yeah uh, bill tanner chief of thing that guy from for your eyes only oh yeah 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 of course so yeah so that really annoying guy the chief of stuff is now back but he's just more like a an i don't know overworked dude <laughs> yeah he he <laughs> looks stressed he looks stressed yeah uh, and a new m and you am Judy Dench comes in. She's kind of immediately when she comes in the room, uh, you kind of get the sense of who she is and what she's like. She's very stern, kind of a bit cold. She's just, you know, carry on with the briefing. If I wanted that sort of sarcasm, I'd talk to my children or something along those lines. So, yeah, very, um, very big presence just coming into the room. But anyway, Tanner does carry on with the briefing, which is basically that they they originally had some some thoughts that there could have been a secret space-based weapon uh, called GoldenEye, even down to the name they knew it might be called GoldenEye um, at that base. But uh, due to sort of analysis of, of finance and things like that and manpower and all sorts of stuff, they, um, they, didn't, they didn't kind of go along with that, that plan or that, that thought. Basically, M poo-pooed it because, you know, you're getting this idea that M is very much a statistics and and um very methodical and and wants evidence before she makes any rash rash decisions sort of thing 
very logical, I suppose. And as this is going on in the uh, briefing, we do cut back to Natalia, who is still in uh, the the base in Seven Aya. Um, and obviously she comes out and, but she wasn't in the vent. She wasn't in the vent. The, you know, they, they did the old switcheroo on you where actually she hid in the, the cupboards. Very sneaky. Well done. Um, I, I don't know if that was on purpose. As in like, did she try and get in the vent and she couldn't in time, so she hid in the cupboard? That's did... what I took it as. Like she tried oh. to open the vent, which is why the vent was tampered with, but couldn't, so just hid in the cupboard. That's how I took it. Okay. Okay. So yeah, she comes out and, and looks around and obviously spots all of the, the dead bodies and and kind of in shock from it all. But then also spots that on the big screen, the uh, golden eye, the bomb uh, has been launched and is, you know, coming her way, basically. Um, and then it goes off, right? Does it go off? Or does it go back to... Yeah, I think it's... A, yeah, because there's like this dramatic scene where she's about to be like, oh no, it's like she sees the timer and it's like, like so little time left. <laughs> so she has to react like straight away. Oh yeah. And it's like, is there a slow motion jump? I feel like there might be a slow-mo jump. I think there's a slow-mo, <laughs> yeah, maybe a slow-mo run as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the bomb goes off and uh, kind of releases the, you know, the EMP um, blast over the base and just makes everything blow up basically everything's blow up everything's blown up there are sparks everywhere and uh yeah explosions um some of the jets that got scrambled the ones that uh, oromov said would take 19 minutes they were on their way there and they get caught in it as well so uh, a couple of them just blow up in the sky uh, and then one of them kind of loses control and and smashes into the the base itself into the into the uh, the side of it, which I think, as far as model work go, you could definitely tell it was a model, but it looked okay. It looked all right. Well, the actual radar dish itself. Yeah, where you can see the plane smash into it or the jet smash into it. Yeah, I guess so. This radar dish, though, is so, in my head, so incredibly iconic <laughs> that I just kind of love seeing it anyway. So I'm, I'm, too, I'm in, in too deep to critique it. There's something about it. Maybe part of it is because of the game and stuff, but there's, it's so big and huge. It's just like, ah, oh, yeah, that dish. It's just that dish from Golden Knight. Mm. And also one thing I should point out is whilst this is all going on and everything's blown up, there's a lot of electricity, right? Because it's EMP, it's meant to destroy circuitry and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of electrocution, electrocution going on. And I guess this was pre-kind of computer-generated... Um, electrocution electricity because it really reminded me of the stuff you'd see maybe in uh star wars like like the sith like palpatine's electrocution oh you mean it's not cgi it's just somebody's just like yeah it's like just slapped on some lightning (laughs) but i i think this looks so much better i love this old-fashioned style of uh yeah like all this the the sparks and and the bolts of lightning i know it looks a little bit outdated but I think something about it just, it's warming to me. I just, I, I really like it. Yeah, it's kind of silly because this was back when, I guess, like nowadays, if you're like, oh, we use an EMP, people would be like, well, I've played Call of Duty. I know what that means. Um, 
but there was like a real effort in this film where Tanner actually explains like electric magnetic pulse, the EMP. And Q's looking around the corner, looking all annoyed because I normally explain that stuff. What's going on <laughs> That's here, my Tanner? <laughs> God damn it, Tanner! He gets his uh, his um, cast rocket out, ready to <laughs> <Just> go. He's <laughs> peeking around the corner. Go on, then. <laughs> Bring it on, Tanner. Still my thunder. Uh, no, that sadly doesn't happen. But yeah, so Tanner, Tanner explains it. But then I feel like a lot of this visualization is more so the use or the person watching kind of understands that something is happening here. So, like, to explain why the planes are being fallen down, they just have to, like, put some sappy blue lightning around it. So, yeah, I kind of agree. There's, like, a charm to it. It does yeah. look kind of bad, but there is a charm to it. Definitely. That's, yeah, it is charming. Um, Natalia's not having a great time, though, because, you know, she's in this building. It's got smashed in by a jet. It's falling apart. She almost gets crushed by this big falling contraption, but it stops just before it crushes her. Um and the whole base is falling apart. I think there is a bit, or maybe it kind of settles actually, and it's kind of done for the most part in terms of crumbling, um, because then she kind of takes this time to cover some of the the dead bodies. You know, she's obviously crying, and you get a little bit of the theme, which I recognise. It definitely comes up later on. I don't want to say it's Natalia's theme because I don't think it is just when she's on screen, uh, or maybe kind it is. Of I. I Maybe think it is. Yeah, the most the scenes where you most kind of associate it with is the scenes when she's there. The I sad can't think scenes. of any yeah, the I can't think of any scenes when she's not there and the theme plays. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right actually. It's not bad, but yeah. Um she tries to get out of the place, but the voice recognition that we saw earlier isn't working. Doesn't recognize her voice because it's busted, obviously. Uh so She's sort of just trapped there for a while and just in silence pretty much in this gigantic building. Um, and then it whole, the whole thing just caves in. <laughs> it's like, yeah. This is another one of those, it's like the timing gags where it's just completely silent. She's there in this big room is, you know, very much the focus is on the roof and then crash. It all, this whole thing just comes down and she jumps out of the way. She can't catch a break, honestly. Although maybe she can, because that's the way that she gets out of the building, is by climbing out of the wreckage. So, Yeah, it's a well. very bad day for her. <laughs> it really like, is. She just wanted really some coffee. really build on it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she, she goes out, and um, you do hear her. Although it's quite nice, you do hear her shouting for Boris as well. Boris! Which is a, a nice little touch, you know. It's, Boris! Uh, we said, <laughs> I don't know if she sounded exactly like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, back in the situation room, back in MI6, um the satellite the feed that was showing you know bond and m and tanner uh, obviously got affected by the emp so it all just kind of blacked out and they were wondering what the hell's going on although they eventually get a, another satellite come into orbit you know and they, they can pick up footage again and when they do they see that the base has been destroyed and the, the jets have been cr- crashed into it and the blackout itself being a sign of an emp and kind of evidence that Goldeneye probably does exist and that whoever did this was uh, trying to use the the blast, trying to use the EMP as a way to wipe out the, any trace of the crime, basically. And this this scene sort of ends with, with M and Bond um, wondering about if it could be uh, Yanis, something to do with the Yanis group, because I guess they've had that 
that connection already with Onatop and whoever it was, Bond says it must have been an insider because there would have been very high security in such a place as this. And as he says that, he sees on the, the satellite feed, which has now turned into almost like a thermal one, um, he sees Natalia, like the little white dot on this thermal camera, uh, walking out out of the wreckage and uh, notes that that's probably a good pers- person to uh, to ask about if there was a traitor. Yeah, and she finally gets a break. <laughs> she she gets some nice dogs, yeah. Yeah, she falls down in the snow. It's like, oh. But then the husky dogs from before, and she's like, yay, the husky dogs. <laughs> and then she has a great time. Yeah, and that's it. But I won't talk too much about M just yet because the next scene is very M-focused, so we'll save that mm. for a little bit. But I absolutely love seeing Bond with Tanner looking at all this and being involved in the kind of information gathering intelligence side of mi6 we never really see that like he normally comes in and gets briefed and there's some you know there can be some back and forth but this is like an actual intelligence agency and this is bond looking at something that's happening and working with m and tanner to figure out what's going on there's like this extra added layer they added here and it's incredibly cool it's such a cool way of doing it. It's not just Bond going into M and M being like, so have you heard of EMPs? And him being like, hmm, EMPs, EMPs. Ah, yes. <laughs> it reels off this five-minute speech about them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. As amazing and charming as that was when Roger Moore did it, I kind of like this big old update of him being involved in this way and actually working with them and helping them kind of figure it out. It's a very different feel. It's... It's what they were somewhat trying to do with the living daylights, but I don't think they succeeded where they wanted this to be a proper, you know, MI6, an actual functioning intelligence unit. But now they've done it a lot better because they're in this small dark room and Tanner's all stressed and sweaty and <laughs> like it feels a little bit more kind of grounded and spy Whether it's actually realistic or not, I don't know. But it has that kind of feel and seeing Bond still being himself and knowing what's going on, helping to figure it out. It's just extremely entertaining seeing this all play out like this. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it also helps that with this particular plot point at this point in the film and where they are, it's happening live. Like, it's not just Bond walks into the briefing and, you know, it's, it's there for your eyes only. It's got a code name already and... They tell him what to do and he goes off and, and does it. As you say, they're, they're working it out. They're, they're going through it as it's happening. It's very reactionary, which gives it a kind of another level of drama, which is good. Yeah, like I like that older style, but this was a very smart way of updating it. Um, but also, yeah, we're seeing Natalia go through the motions and we're cutting between these two events and it really helps explain it. You know what's going on. You make sense. It's setting up her character and her background by actually just seeing it, <laughs> which is really good and jumping between the two. But something that this film does, and it, I think it's most highlighted in this scene, is that it's not afraid to kind of take its time because GoldenEye is 130 minutes long. Like this is just as long as the John Glenn ones, like very much in that same... Uh, thing but it's not quite like as fastly intensely paced as some of those it it knows when to go quick and it kind of knows when to slow down Mm. not that everything is super clear but this is it taking advantage of slowing down a bit but also jumping between these two scenes 
and just to set up the plot to set up mi6 to set up natalia to set all these events up it's like very smartly done it's not boring but it's like really purposely taking its time and really kind of using that longer length to benefit the film as a whole and it's just so refreshing (laughs) finally (laughs) it's not just padded and drawn out for the sake of it it's very purposeful it's very engaging Um, and again i'm not saying every scene in this film works necessarily there's there's things to critique but I think this is when the film's actually quite strong. Like, it's not just strong with its amazing action. It's also quite strong with this sort of kind of storytelling and pacing. Yeah. Yeah. Even down to things like uh, Oromov and, and On the Top doing the the key, the, basically showing the process of, of Goldeneye and how it is a very uh, step-by-step thing. And part of that is because it's it's very cinematic, you know, having the nuclear bomb effect of the, the two keys and, and that and the big button and all that. But the whole explanation of, of the satellites and that could have easily, in any any other film, been a point that I go, huh, what? What was that? I don't have to rewind. Um, but they, they, as you say, they take the time of this and they, they do go through it at a nice pace and then... It means that later on in the film, I'm not wondering what the hell has just happened or why is that doing that for? It all just flows. Yeah, like there are some confusing things I would say about this film, but like the core of it is just well explained and put forward. Like you will never see a scene in GoldenEye or with the way that Mike Campbell has done this film where he like, I'm going to go onto an ice rink. Oh no, hockey players. (laughs) Goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And then throws them into the goal. It just doesn't work like that stuff is more multi-purpose it's more smart it it ties into each other more it sets a tone it sets a pace it's all very deliberate where i think a lot of the stuff in the john glenn era is like can we get a pigeon can we get a pigeon in there (laughs) (laughs) we need no there's no can yeah it's we will get a pigeon yeah (laughs) the pigeon's going in you guys write around the pigeon okay yeah that's happening Uh, and it, it just feels like smallest storytelling so there's kind of nothing really like that here which i massively appreciate and just so into the vibe of this film at this point just so into it oh yeah so with that uh bond and m actually go to their office or m's office and it's had a bit of an update it's mm. very different like so Unlike the Timothy Dalton films, there is still that classic setup of Money Penny at her office and then M's office. But this time it's like an incredibly modern, up-to-date version of that. It's just kind of like meant to be the same setup, but completely updated. It looks nice. I like it. I like the lighting. It's got this sort of uh, lighting in the ceiling. Lots of wood still, but in a in a slightly more... You know, less like the wood panelling of the old M's office. It's still there, but just in a different way. Yeah, it's very moody MI6 here. It's very... Because it's supposed to be them working late, and they really just nail that vibe of all this artificial lighting, but everything kind of dark as well. It's oh, just another thing that's just cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so M is on the phone. Uh, Bond's in, there, uh, in her office, and she puts down the phone saying, like, Moscow are saying it's an accident... And there's a line from Bond saying, ah, the government changes, but the lies, they stay the same. And Bond then starts talking about the Yanis group. And they say how we have no idea who runs this Yanis group. There's no information about this guy at all. 
And all we know is that on a top is a, a contact. So that's all we have, but she's escaped, so they don't have much. And M offers Bond a drink and gets the drink. And I think Bond says your predecessor drank Kodiak? Kodiak? Something like that. Well, I just remembered the your predecessor bit. I didn't remember what he said, actually. Yeah, I know. It's like Kodiak. Was, he said a specific drink, but she's like, well, I drink bourbon. So, um, so she pours Bond and her a bourbon and hands it off and yeah then they continue on their conversation having a drink and M saying how could general oromov be involved the man we saw before but does it, i think bond is saying that but she's like well that doesn't fit the profile of a traitor like we don't have any evidence or any profiling on this guy that would imply that he would be a traitor and would work with the yanis group and at this point, Bond, I don't think Bond really does anything, but between M and Bond at this point, there's been this like back and forth between M wanting to do things by the book with numbers and profiles and Bond going by his gut. So just at this point, M's like, you don't like me, do you, Bond? You don't you don't like my methods? You think I'm an accountant, a, a bean counter who would rather use numbers rather than go off your instinct, of which Bond doesn't really deny that? And then she's like, well, I think you're a, a sexist dinosaur, a relic from the Cold War. And then she starts saying how, well, your boyish charm worked on that poor woman that I sent to evaluate you, but it doesn't work on me. And M continues by saying, I don't really care about saying sending someone to their death. I will send you to your death if I think that's the right thing to do, but I won't do it on a whim. And she concludes by saying, I need you to investigate the Golden Eye and figure out what's going on, but don't engage with General Oromov because we don't know. And M kind of finishes off by saying, don't make this personal. I know you've got that. You know, because this is the General Oromov. So he is the one that shot Alec 006 at the very beginning of the film. So M says, don't make this personal. Of which Bond says, never. Very quickly. And before Bond leaves, M just stops him and says, Bond, like, do come back alive. Gives a quick smile and then steps out. And what an introduction, man. Like, straight off the bat, she has such a different vibe to what we've seen in the past. And there is this slight playfulness between them still, but it is very more like matter of fact. These are two people with a straight face sitting down talking cold facts to each other and M's very much a straight shooter but she has such an intense great presence to her and she kind of does it in a way where Bond doesn't get kind of completely beaten down you kind of still kind of get what Bond's doing and they very much present this as like two different sides in fact M just straight up says it like (laughs) I'm the numbers person and you're the gut instinct person I like to do things by the book and you don't but she just pulls it off. Judy Dench just completely smashes it out of the park. Out of anyone else, this might have come across as very just like a bit too much and too on the nose. But because of Judy Dench and her performance, she just smashes it. Just such a such a great start to her M. I think this might be one of my, if not maybe the uh my favourite scenes in the film. Yeah. I, I just this is such a great just take it on its own. This is such a great scene and I just love it. I love everything about it. I don't want to repeat too much what you just said. Judy Dench is great. You know, she really brings this level of sort of sophistication to the role 
that it needs that M needs that role. Uh, sorry, that sort of personality behind it, um, but in a slightly different way. And I, I'm so happy that the you know this film isn't afraid to have what some people might think this is oh this is boring this is a boring scene it's just two people talking to each other in an office right but it's not afraid to do it it's not afraid to do this in in like a quiet very intricate way you know it's it's really not much to this scene but what is said in it is so smart and like tight and the dialogue is so snippy and and just the right level of like back and forth and and a bit of exposition but a bit of character building because you're seeing, this isn't just a new M, a new bond we're seeing with Piers Brosnan. This is a new M, and it's a whole new relationship that they're having to set up now between these two characters. And they actually devote some time to that. It's they don't just have the whole okay, yeah, Bond's going to come in and get the brief and then leave. They realise that there has to be a, a bit more to it. And it's oh man, and it's just, like even on a wider level, it's it's the the themes of this where it's it's. It's old versus new. That's one of the biggest things of this film is is old ways of Bond and, and new ways. And that even stretches out into the the franchise itself and where it was at at this point. And, you know, when when M calls Bond a relic of the Cold War, I mean, I think that's that's commentary, it's quite on the nose commentary, about the Bond franchise overall. Like, could the Bond film survive after a break? Would they survive after having... Uh, no more nasty Russians and that sort of stuff. And obviously it did, and it's great, but oh, I just think there's so many things in the scene, but they don't fight against each other. They all work so well. Because you even get a little bit of the revenge element right at the end there about, you know, it wasn't your fault sort of thing about Alec dying. And it's so easy to just have this be a mess, but it doesn't feel like a mess. I just think it's great. I'm going to stop gushing now, but I really love this scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it kind of highlights why the Bill Tanner stuff from like the older film didn't work, where he was just like, it's not even the age thing necessary, where he was just insulting Bond because there was no balance. But even though M is very critical about Bond and very harsh towards him and very matter of factly, they still add in all those little touches. Like the fact that she offers him a drink and they have a bit of bourbon together. The fact that at the end she's like, come back alive and. They add in all those kind of little moments of kind of respect between the two. That means you kind of buy it when she is more, you know, dressing him down a bit. And they add in a little bit of personality with Emma as well, even though she is very kind of stoic. Like earlier, where when they're in the, the situation room and Bond is looking at the satellite images, there's a quick moment where she's like, are these images live? And Emma's like, yes. Unlike the Americans, we prefer not to get our information from CNN. It's like, that's so good. Mm. Like, just, yeah, it's like of the Americans. But yeah. at the same time, it's very, <laughs> like, yeah, she's very proud, but isn't afraid to slag people off. It's not one note. They add in a lot of complexity with her and the relationship with Bond, which, as you say, it's all very, like, in, in a brief span. But it's all very purposeful and, and well done. So it's... Yeah, and I just love how kind of quiet this is and how not theatrical it is, where Bond entering M's office before was very more theatrical. It's like, oh, here he comes into the thing, and it's like, ah, 007, meet this man, who's the Diamond Man. It's like, hello, it's me, the Diamond Man. Um, this, <laughs> this is just a very quiet back and forth between peers, and it's just, yeah, 
so as good as it can get for what they were trying to do. For lack of a better term, it's a very grown-up scene. It's it it just it doesn't it takes itself seriously. And I'm just going back to the bit about uh, where where she ends saying "Come back alive." I'm so glad that they still had that element. I think you still need, and it's why that previous guy that was what was that awful guy who just basically berated Bond every time he saw him. It's why that just would never have worked. Many reasons why that wouldn't have worked. But you can't just have M just be this angry figure bashing Bond all the time. You still, you need, as you said, they're like, I don't know, one's, one's their boss, but they are still colleagues in a sense. And you need to know that M actually cares about Bond. So as much as they put up all of their fluff about, you know, I'll send you out to die, it's not just that clear cut. There is more to it. And you're getting that. And especially seeing where this version of M goes later on in Skyfall and things, you're getting it, or the seeds of it, right at the beginning. And, oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Just seeing Judy Dench's M, because, you know, we've both grown up with her being M for the most part. Yeah. So just seeing her in the first role is just like, oh, yeah, Judy Dench. Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's We could spend the whole podcast, I think, talking about this scene by the sounds of it. Yeah, aren't we? Um... No, but we're doing the M Revisited podcast after this, so <laughs> we'll cover it then. <laughs> oh, sounds great. I'll be there. Yeah. After the scene in M's office, we are at St. Petersburg at a fancy-looking um, government building, I presume, uh, because inside there is a, a big table. It's a big room, huge room, very fancy-looking, uh, big table, lots of people on the table. Uh, one particular man with a very nice beard, uh, he was looking out the window and he comes and sits back down and they've all been waiting, basically. They've all been waiting for Oromov to turn up. Uh, he's there uh, to talk to this group and the head guy, um, who is the Russian defence minister. Didn't catch his name, not really important. Uh, Miskin. Um, Miskin. Dmitry, so, I'm, I'm looking this up here, Dmitry Miskin. Okay. So Oromov's there to deliver his report on what happened in Sevanaya um, and, you know, how it ended up getting blown up because, you know, Russia has told the world that it was an accident, but I suppose they want to know what really happened. Um, and Oromov basically says that he's been investigating it and they have discovered it was a, it was a crime by some si- Siberian separatists, uh, and given that um, it's a step backwards in the relationships and all that sort of stuff, the things that they've been trying to work on as a government and a bit of an embarrassment, he uh, he offers he tenders his resignation to the the board in front of him, who don't take it very well. Um, the the defense minister says that you know they, they don't want your head, you don't need to do that, but we do need to know. Was there any other satellites as part of GoldenEye? Um, I guess for security reasons. And also that there was two missing technicians as well, which kind of has a reaction from Oromov because from his perspective, he only knows of one, which was Boris, because he was outside having a cigarette. Uh, But yeah, the defence minister says that there was another body unaccounted for. Uh, Natalia ends up being... Um, so Oromov basically says, he basically, the, the minister tells it, tells him off and says, oh, you know, you came to that conclusion without even knowing who was there or who survived. Uh, 
a bit presumptuous, don't you think? And puts him in his place, dresses him down. And so Oromov walks off and says uh, he'll carry on, carry on the investigation. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about like spending too much time on every scene. <laughs> but this yeah. was really good as well. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's got your favourite character by the sound it's, of it. It's, yeah, pretty much my favourite character, General Oromov, because even his acting here, because the whole point is that there's a bit of a, a pissing contest, let's say, between the two men. But that moment where the minister says, well, there's actually two survivors. You get a shot of the general's face just drop. And he's like, uh-huh. I was only aware of one. Uh, I, I will thank you for bringing this to my attention. I, I would investigate. <laughs> but there's like smart way this is set up as well, where you have the the minister, the defense minister on one side of the table with a bunch of old dudes, the council. And then the other side of the table is empty apart from Urumov. Mm. So there's like this nice visual kind of, set up there where he's kind of by himself and separated from the group and that's just incredibly smart it's just yeah i won't spend too much time on this but it's very functional this scene but even then small little things in this just make it great um along with the rest of the film so far yeah i think i I, again i won't i won't go on too long but these are the sort of scenes that in and I'm not just saying this because I've recently watched the film, but in any other film, these could have been very forgettable scenes. They're, they're just kind of filler. But even the way this is done, it's still memorable for reasons. So kind of just uh, credit where it's due for that. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 17 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond heads to St. Petersburg, finds the truth out about the Yanis group, meets up with Natalia, all leading to the finale in Cuba. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.